It was just one of those things, just one of those crazy things, one of those bells that now and then rings, just one of those things. It was just one of those nights, just one of those fabulous flights, a trip to the moon on gossamer wings, just one of those things. If we thought a bit of the end of Started painting the town We'd have been aware That our love affair was too hot Not to cool down So goodbye dear and amen Here's hoping We meet now and then And it was great fun But it was just one of those things Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio This week on Broadway for Sunday June 24, 2018 my name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. We have Vivian Reed, who is returning to talk with us once again. We spoke to Vivian back in December of 2015. Uh, And coming up on Saturday, June 30th at 7 p.m., Vivian is going to be performing at the Green Room 42 uh, with her show celebrating Broadway and Hollywood icon Lena Horne, who would have been 101 on that exact date. Uh, So, Vivian, thanks for joining us on a Sunday morning of Broadway Radio. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to to be here again. <laughs> well, tell us about your uh, your relationship with Lena Horne. Well, um, when I was born to Juilliard, because I was born a classical singer, uh, at the same time, I was being managed by the owners of the Apollo Theater, the Schiffman, oh. uh, along with Mr. Honey Coles. And uh, so one day, Bobby said to come into his office because he had something he wanted to show me. And when I went in there, there was this huge trunk and uh, inside <laughs> were some beautiful gowns. And I said, well, what is this? Well, you see, Lena Horne's uncle was the accountant for the Apollo Theater, Mr. Burkhorn. Oh. So Bobby had asked him to ask her if she had any gowns that she wasn't uh, wearing anymore, which she considered giving them to this young budding artist. And so she sent over this trunk and that, just that alone, that generosity alone is what really um, gave me such a great feeling. And I've always, down through the years, felt a fondness for her. And I did go to see her in 1981 when she was on Broadway, and I made a beeline backstage, uh. hopefully, to see her. And I was able to meet her and remind her that I was the young lady that she had, you know, given the gowns to. Wow. That's uh, a Quite a New York story right there, just to start. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> you also got to portray Lena Horne in um, More Than a Song with the Pittsburgh Ballet Company. Uh, so tell us about that. Well, that was under the direction of uh, Lynn Taylor Corbett, who's done a few shows on Broadway, and I had done a, um, other productions with her, and I really love her work. So when she called to say that this particular evening with the Pittsburgh Ballet Company was going to be called Indigo in Motion, and it was going to feature 
three choreographers, and she was one of them, and she wanted to do uh, her section, her act on Lena Horne and wanted me to portray her. So I jumped at the opportunity, number one, to be able to tell this woman's this incredible woman's life story and also to work under Lynn again and it was a huge success we were at the uh, Benedum uh, theater and uh, we did it twice we did it the first time I forget maybe in 2000 and then it came again like a few years later and it was amazing because some of the things that I some things that I did not know about that I was not aware of. Um, I learned so much just from doing that show. It's fascinating. Uh, she had such a fascinating life. I, I've read up yes, on her. Yes, she did. And one of the most fascinating things to me is that she actually started out as a dancer in the she chorus. started out as... In the chorus line at the In the chorus, honey. Her mother yanked her out of school (laughs) to go. And I speak of this. I speak of this in in my show. She yanked her out of school to uh, go to work, you know, at the Cotton Club, um, because according to her mom, it was a depression and they had to eat. And Lena didn't like that because she really loved going to school. She was a rare young individual. And, uh, And another thing that I don't know if you know is that, Earlier on, when she was young, she did not consider herself a singer at all, and uh, and there were actually some people who who told her that she couldn't sing, and she started watching some of the greats like um, Ethel Waters and so forth, and just kind of watching them and learning from them, and oftentimes I tell my students because I teach for Marymount Manhattan Manhattan uh, College, I teach uh, voice, and I tell them it really isn't how great your voice is as opposed to how great a performer you are, that communication. Yes, you do have to have an ear, but you don't have to have the greatest world, uh, greatest voice in the world to be a great performer. Sure, and we've she seen was, on Broadway many times, sure. Yes, she was a great performer. You know, whether she considered herself a great singer or not did not matter because when you watch Lena Horne, you saw a woman singing from the depths of her soul. She sold the song. She sold the lyrics. And um, that's what I most loved about her, as opposed to her activism. Uh, not as opposed to, but along with her activism, sure. because she she fought a lot, you know, for mm-hmm. African-Americans and all people, really. Mm-hmm. And um, so it just wasn't about the singing. Her life was so many things. Have you ever seen, Vivian, that uh, episode of Sanford and Son that Lena is a guest on? I probably have, but it doesn't come to my mind right away. What what was the subject matter? Well, it's quite hilarious because Fred uh, is obsessed with her. And I, I actually don't remember how she comes into the story, but somehow she does. And he's okay. spends the whole <laughs> the whole half, half hour just in complete awe of her. Uh, and, it's, and it's fun, you know, it's so much fun to see her in a sitcom. It's really quite something. It's, check it out. Yeah, well, you know, she was funny. Lena oh, Horne yeah. had a funny side to her. Yeah. You know, I remember watching um, the whole show actually was devoted to Lena on the Dick Cavett show. And uh, God, she she was funny, feisty, funny and serious. She just showed all the sides of her character. I mean, she was amazing. You put together this show coming up at Green Room 42. Um, tell us about uh, what we're going to see that night. Well, um, 
I received a call from Daniel Nardiccio, who is a producer, and uh, he called me maybe in the latter part of uh, 2016, and he said, you know, Lena Horne's uh, centennial is coming up in 2017, June 30th. You may want to think about putting a show together for her. And I really didn't hesitate uh, because I really did love this woman, and maybe this is my way of paying tribute to her for, for the generosity that she had shown me years ago. So it was a matter of picking the material. My manager's up in Montreal, and I told him I was going to put a show together on Lena Horn. So he sent me, um, oh, God, maybe 150 to 200 uh, mp3 files and so i had to listen to all of them and then kind of dwindle them down to 20 or 30 songs and um it was not too terribly difficult because she sang nothing but standards and uh even though i i'm a bit more eclectic because i I do other types of music besides standards but i think the difficult for me the difficulty for me was finding the right song that was going to fit in the segment that I had dedicated to her activism, which was a very serious segment, which also included um, narrative about when she lost the four important men in her life, like her husband, her son, her father, and, and, and Billy Strayhorn. And I had to have the right piece in the um, when she was an activist, and that was the most difficult. And so I'm listening now. It's dwindled down to the 20 or 30. No, no. When I was dwindling it down to the 20 or 30, I came across the song. Now is the moment. Now. So I'm saying to myself, okay, it's Habang Lagila melody, but we uh-huh. song going, you know. <laughs> and then when I heard what the lyric was about, it was. Perfect. I was so happy. I think I jumped up and just started screaming, yes, yes, I found it, I found it, because that was important, is to find the right song to fit with that moment and the narrative about her activism. So um, once I found that, then the rest was kind of easy because I only sing, I don't sing songs because somebody else sang them, and so I'm going to sing them, even if I'm depicting their life, it doesn't matter. I have to like the song. And it has to be right for my voice. And um, so, but that was okay because a lot of the songs that she sang, I had sung earlier on in, in, in my career. And um, and then it was about changing arrangements because I don't ever do anything like anybody else. I mean, I'm kind of known for my arrangements. So I just kind of sat with the music. I came up with 15 choices and 15 songs and sat with each one of them deciding what I wanted to do with them, and also, at the same time, um, considering what the band would do. And I elected, even though if I do my normal show, it's usually two keyboards, piano and drums, and probably a horn, because I like a big sound, and a lot of times I might be singing something funky, something R&B along with the theater stuff. But for Lena, she didn't use a second keyboard. She was about the guitar. So I decided to go with piano, bass, drums and guitar, and then it was about adding, figuring out the colors that I was going to have, um, you know, showing the uh, musicians and having them featured. It seems to me that Lena Hahn had retired 
officially had retired about a year before she actually came to Broadway to do the lady and her music. Um, I think you might be right. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any idea what got her back? Uh, what seduced her to get back on a Broadway stage after saying, I'm done? I'm not sure, but I know by the time she did come back, because she did, there were the years of um, after she started to lose the important men in her life, uh, that there was that time of mourning. And, you uh, know, let, let me say this. I took some time off um, from show business to be available for my mom, and uh, who was up in age, and my father had already passed. And my brother was there in the house with her, but I just wanted to be able to go home and not worry about telling some director or stage manager, oh, the understudy oh. has to go on because sure. I got to go home. So I just took time off and really didn't care so much about show business because it was about me and my mom. And when she passed, um, it was time to get back to show business. And I I, even mm. though I don't know it for a fact, but I would say that after she mourned the loss of these, these four gentlemen in her life, I think she's, because don't forget, Lena always had that, that performing bug in her. Even when she married the first time to Lewis Jones, she, that's why their marriage didn't work because she, she, she wasn't meant to be a, a, a mm -hmm. politician's wife. She didn't sure. want to be a politician's wife. So I would venture to say she knew it was time to get back, and what a way in her latter years to to come back, you know, because then she could do a concert talking about her life, and I, oh, it, it was it was such a great concert, such a great concert. So I would venture to say that had much to do with it that she wanted to get back to singing. And so such, one, such an mm -hmm. unexpected. Huge, phenomenal yeah. hit at, at the Nederlander, which I mm. think it was a well at the yeah. time, especially was a real dump, and it was sure. kind of like nobody <laughs> thought this this thing would last. I don't even remember. I think the wasn't there maybe the initial booking like four weeks or something like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> when they extended her, what have you? Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, what have you learned in the last uh, couple of years since you decided to put together this retrospective that surprised you? That surprised me? Um, hmm. Mm -hmm. That surprised me. I, You know what? I'm older now, and I don't know if there's too many surprises <laughs> when it comes to performing. Now, if you ask me about Tartuffe, the play I finished, just finished doing at the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival, that was something new for me because <laughs> it was rhyming couplets. So that was a learning curve. But <laughs> doing her show, um, my, my show and all of my shows that I have done since I've come back, which has been since uh, in 2013, um, they're very much comfortable. They're not formal where you, the audience, is sitting there and you're watching this person on stage and you don't ever come together. I'm very much like in your living room or you're in mine. It's a very comfortable show. And I will veer away from the subject matter mm -hmm. um, in a heartbeat. If, like, for instance, somebody... <laughs> This guy and his wife came into my show a half an hour late. I was uh -huh. like, this was, a, this was at 54 Below. 
um, uh, just a few months ago because I, I did the Lena Horn show there four times. And I don't know what I was talking about. I probably finished what I was talking about and then said, I know you ain't coming to my show for <laughs> Do you have any idea <laughs> what you have missed? Do you understand the songs you have missed? And, of course, everybody was laughing, <laughs> and they were laughing. So it's it's not uh, beyond me to go away from <laughs> what the subject matter is. I'll do that in a heartbeat. Um, but surprises, no. I can't say um, – it's it's been so well received by the critics. Um, no, I can't really say there there have been uh, any surprises. I've just enjoyed um, doing the show, talking about her, and for and now I will tell you this: young people, you know they don't know who she is. They don't have a clue sure. who she is. But I've had young people come up to me at the end of a show and say, you know what? I'm going to look her up. You've made me so mm. curious about Lena Horn. So it's been didactic as far as they are concerned, the show. Mm. Um, and I would say, yeah, that may be the surprising thing because sometimes you forget that. Because I, I think, if I'm to be honest, when I was young, there are people that I probably should have known about and didn't know. And I can't say should have known about because who says that they have to know about Lena Horne? Mm-hmm. You know, how can you stay on top of every legend ever existed? Oh, you can't. Sure. Sure. You know, so it's, 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 it's understandable. You know, and when they say, like even certain, certain songs that are huge, that are just classic standards, and you figure everybody knows them, and they don't. They just don't. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to say, if the movie of The Wiz had been a bigger hit, uh, maybe everyone would know who she is. But as it is, she's the best thing in that movie. Oh, my God. She was incredible. Incredible. My my, uh, um, belief in yourself is a little bit different from hers. But um, what an impact she made. You're absolutely right. The way they filmed it, the way they set that that scene, it was was Mm. fabulous. Yes. And we're not going to even speak of her beauty. Oh, God. Oh, she was yeah. so incredibly beautiful. You know, just amazing. Yes. Well, Vivian, I want to thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us on Broadway Radio. I want to remind listeners that on Saturday, June 30th at 7 p.m., don't be late. She will be yeah. Green oh, Room. no. You, don't be late. <laughs> uh, right in your calendar, 6.30. 6.30, Green Room 42. You know, Saturday, June yes. 30th. <laughs> Absolutely. See. Maybe 6 o'clock. <laughs> Maybe even uh, right. 6 o'clock. It's, it's good to get there uh, a little bit early and a beautiful and sunset I'm, Let me there. just say, can I just say something about the yeah. Green Room? I'm looking forward. I, I saw Lilius there because Daniel, my PR person, has been telling me, uh, Dan, rather, um, about um, the Green Room and... So my first show that I saw there was, uh, or I should say the first show that I saw there was Lilius White, uh, and I love the room. It's, it's a very, it's a wonderful room, and so I, I spoke with the artistic director, Daniel Dunlow, and so we're going to be talking about lights and stuff that they haven't really been using because a lot of artists haven't been asking for them, but see, I'm very detailed that way. What do you have in sound? What do you have in light? Let's, let's you know, pursue that. So I'm looking forward to working in the green room. It has a very warm atmosphere. And you know what? More importantly, there is no minimum. Ah. No minimum. Mm-hmm. And the tickets are reasonably priced between 20 and 
60, and there are no bad seats, but no minimum. And if you get there early enough, they even have happy hour. Can you believe it? All right. All right. (laughs) Get there 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock. There you go. There you go. Vivian, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, talk with us about your show coming up. Oh, it's been my pleasure. you believe within your heart, you'll know that no one can change the path that you must go. Believe what you feel and know it's right because the time will come around when you can say it's yours. Believe that there's a reason to be. Stand still and know from the moment you try. If you believe, I know you will believe. All right, in our review section. Uh, Peter, you got down to the Roundabout Theater's Laura Pell's Theater, where you saw Skin Tight with Idina Menzel. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, I'm reminded of something Walter Kerr wrote when Neil Simon's play The Star-Spangled Girl opened uh, in 1966. Now, this was widely anticipated because the play before that was The Odd Couple and the play before that was Barefoot in the Park. And yet, Neil Simon said, I'm sorry, Walter Kerr said, Neil Simon didn't have an idea for a play this season, but he wrote one anyway. By the way, Neil Simon was a very good sport about that and said it was one of the best lines he's ever seen in a review. And so as a result, he was essentially saying guilty as charged. Well, um, I think we can really almost say that about Joshua Harmon, uh, a, a very, very, very gifted playwright who has done such wonderful work with Bad Jews, a significant other that wound up on Broadway and last year's admissions. Of, of the four plays that we've seen off Broadway from him, I'm afraid this one makes the least impression. So uh, it's supposedly um, a thinly veiled look at Calvin Klein's life, but uh, just um, whether or not that's accurate or not. Um, and <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of consternation about that, but a lot of people think that's who Joshua Harmon had in mind. But anyway, in this case, uh, we don't have... Um, uh, Calvin uh, identified as such. We have Elliot, um, who has made a fortune doing essentially what Calvin Klein did, came from nothing, and uh, lives in this phenomenal apartment, uh, beautiful, beautiful set. And um, he's turning 70 years old, and his daughter feels duty-bound to come and celebrates his birthday and brings her son with him, uh, with her too. Uh, he's Benjamin, uh, 20 years old, and he's um, <laughs> on the cantankerous side. Everything annoys him, one of those kids. Um, astonishingly gay, uh, very much out. Um, and uh, the thing is, so is his grandfather. His grandfather has now picked up a cute boy toy. And um, what's a little confusing at the beginning is the fact that um, they refer to each other as partners. And I'm wondering if that's um, a term that might throw people off because 
it is true that since um, marriage has been legalized among gays, that the term husband has been used much more often. But for a long time, partners seemed to mean uh, people who were essentially married. So one of the big things in the play is eventually uh, the young stud um, asks Elliot to to get married. And frankly, um, I thought they already were. So um, I was misled there by my own, um, I guess, archaic way of looking at uh, terms involved here. But so uh, that's the conflict. Uh, Dina Menzel really believes that the stud is a gold digger and uh, just wants his money because after all, he's not much older than Benjamin. And uh, Benjamin and um, the stud seem to be attracted to each other too. And um, whether or not the kid is for real um, is really the question here. And I don't know. It seemed all too familiar to me. It seemed like this had been um, said so many times, the idea of a, a young guy and an old guy. And it, 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 we, we do question whether there's any love there. And I do admit that Joshua Harmon has done a very good job of making us think that this young man really could love um, this older man who is played almost like a zombie by Jack Weatherall. Um, he seems to be so exhausted, tired, um, and that may be less from being 70 than uh, the fact that he just doesn't want his daughter and grandson there under these circumstances because he knows that they're uh, both going to make judgments about him. So um, if it sounds interesting to you, good. Um, it just wasn't that interesting to me because um, – haven't we seen this? Well, anyway, so what's nice is that Dina Menzel is um, stretching herself here and saying, OK, I'm going to do a show where there's no music. I'm not going to sing. Um, and uh, and I, I think she acquitted herself nicely. Is it a performance for the ages? Nah. But um, she does extraordinarily well with the dialogue. Um, she gets the jokes where they're supposed to be there. A lot of the play is funny. Uh, especially the first act. The first act is substantially funnier than the second act. And you might say, well, yeah, because then it gets more serious. Sure. But um, <laughs> we could have used some more wit um, in the second act as well. And uh, there were times when I expected zingers to come in that didn't come in, which did come in, in the first act. Uh, so, so uh, you know, this is one of those two and a half stars out of four plays. And um, it's, it's certainly not a waste of time. But, um, boy, um, if you're coming to New York for a, for a weekend or a week, um, this is not on your must-see list. Peter, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Jack Weatherall uh, was a replacement in his role. No, I didn't. Yeah, um, uh, it was supposed to be played by an actor named John Noble. And uh, let's see, in early May, it was announced that Jack would be taking over, uh, that John Noble had to depart due to scheduling conflicts. Um, and the thing about Jack Weatherall, I just, I haven't seen, uh, skin tight yet. I'm going this week, but I saw him in the title role of the original production of the elephant man as one of the replacements in that. Oh, so, right. I do remember that. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be fun to see him on stage again. I think he's been back. He's a Canadian. Um, I don't know if he works a lot up there, but I haven't uh, seen uh, much of him in recent years. So that that is going to be really fun for me. All right. So uh, we'll talk about that again, skin tight again next week after Michael sees it. And uh, we'll get your take on it, Michael. Uh, next up, we have the Min Theater Company's production of Conflict, and Michael and Peter both saw it. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with this? Yes, uh, this is a play by Miles Mallison, a British playwright. Uh, 
and it premiered in 1925. Uh, last last year, the Mint had a big hit with another Mallison play called Yours Unfaithfully, and that one is about uh, a couple that, uh, that's trying to have an open marriage. Um, and it was so interesting to see. Uh, we we might all ha- have our conceptions, our pre, our ideas of what life was like back, you know, back in this whatever the twenties and thirties, and how people, uh, you know, maybe we think that people didn't do things like that back then. But so it's 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 was really bracing to see a play about that. And this new this current production conflict is a is a political drama um i i'll i'll if i may i'll read the beginning of my review for talking broadway uh miles mallison's 1925 drama conflict as seen in the mint theater company's splendid revival at theater row uh has a kinship with such other political works as Aristophanes' ages-old all-time classic Lysistrata and Bo Willimon's recent misfire, The Parisian Woman, in that arguably the central character of Mallison's play is a woman, Lady Dare Bellingdon. She's the unmarried daughter of a filthy rich lord, and although her father certainly doesn't know it, Dare is in the midst of an affair with Major Sir Ronald Clive, a staunch conservative who's standing for Parliament with Lord Bellingdon's strong support. If that sounds like a dicey situation, it becomes even more so when Dare's political leanings and romantic affections begin to shift toward one Tom Smith, a social justice warrior who himself is up for election to parliament as the candidate for the Labour Party. And uh, it's a it's a very, very intriguing play. I, just the concept of uh, how sometimes people, uh, you might love someone else mostly for their mind and their, you know, and, and their worldview and their, you know, even their political leanings, that that might be a major source of attraction. Um, And that certainly is what happens here. Uh, It's very well directed by Jen Thompson. Uh, The production is one of the most beautiful that I've ever seen at the Mint. And, And they have a very high standard anyway. But this one, the sets are by John McDermott, costumes, Martha Halley, lights, Mary Louise Geiger. Um, the main, uh, the main set is a room in Lord Bellingdon's London residence, and it's just so gorgeous and so well-appointed and detailed. It, it's really, really beautiful and probably worth the price of admission alone. Um, the entire cast is excellent, uh, especially uh, the, what I would refer to as the leads. Uh, Dare is played by Jesse Shelton, Lord Bellingdon, Graham Malcolm. Uh, Tom Smith is Jeremy Beck. And... Uh, uh, Ronald Clive is Henry Clark. Um, the Mint, you know, they, they just, they almost never, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost never have uh, a misfire. And, and on the very rare occasions when they do, I think it's just because uh, every now and then they, they maybe pick a play that that does not uh, really stand up to the test of time, but they, you know, they're, they're, everything they do is uh, is is based on performing older plays, uh, sometimes very old plays that that, for one reason or another, are, are not that popular, uh, have not remained that popular, or at least not in this country. M- much of their uh, production history, producing 
British plays that 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 may still may or may not still be done on those stages, but we don't see them here. And they just, um, you know, they they have been incredibly successful at this for all these years. Uh, for many years, they were in a space, a theater space on upstairs in a building on 43rd Street, and then I think they lost that lease, and now they are in residence at. Theater Row. So they didn't move far. Uh, and I hope they kept all of their audience uh, because everything they do is incredibly worthwhile to see. All right, Peter, what'd you think? Well, <clears throat> my uh, girlfriend reminded me that um, I often say when uh, a show has a okay first act that the second act is going to be murder and she brought this up at the end of conflict um saying well that didn't turn out to be true did it well as i had to remind her uh linda i say that about musicals actually um not necessarily plays but it is true that the first act of this play doesn't seem so hot because um it seems inevitable you know the rich stuffy guy whom the, the lady is having the affair with and out comes this um earnest uh, attractive young man uh, who has uh, better goals than the rich guy what's going to happen obviously she's going to wind up with the uh the labor party candidate rather than conservative party candidate so um so it seems so obvious where the play was going but this is an example of taint what you do it's the way that you do it and the second act is so galvanizing that you really start castigating it well i started castigating myself for saying well yeah you know that's, that's so predictable the dialogue is so crackling and so wonderful in this play that uh, it really more than redeemed itself uh, because it brought up so many points that hadn't occurred to me uh, my girlfriend for that matter and um, wow what a finish so under those circumstances I have to say that um, I offer a, a bit of apology to Miles Mallison uh, for uh, not saying well you know uh, he, <laughs> the situation but let's see what he's going to do with it what he did with it was extraordinarily well and I was so proud of my friend Jeff Valenga who came from Columbus uh, this week to uh, see plays and I said what are you seeing so well of course I'm seeing the boys in the band and um, yeah, and I'm seeing desperate measures. I'm seeing conflict at the mint. And I thought this is wonderful that um, a company that really wasn't very well known even just a few years ago is really making such traction that somebody from Columbus, Ohio is paying attention and saying, wow, that's something I want to see when I get to town. So um, uh, all of you out of towners, um, don't ignore the mint when you come to town. Um, as Michael and I are both saying here, uh, these are pretty nice compliments to this company. And I think they're going to get more and more as the years go on. All right, so that is uh, Conflict down at the Mint Theater and Beckett Theater Row. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can take a look at it yourself. It's playing through July 21st, so we have a little bit of time to go see that. Next up, uh, Peter, you get over to Manhattan Theater Club uh, to see Sugar on a Wounds. Lucky enough to get a hard-to-get ticket, so uh, tell us about this. Wow, I thought this one was really, really good. Um, a tremendous um, achievement, uh, not just because the play uh, turns out to be so um, intricate and <laughs> which way will it go uh, and all that, but beautifully, beautifully, beautifully um, acted, especially um, by the um, 
I guess the leading lady, um, um, her name is Stephanie Berry, and she plays an old woman. We're in 1862, and uh, times are tough. We're um, we're dealing with slaves who do read in the paper. One slave can read. He's been taught by uh, the white woman on the plantation. He's been taught to read, and he's reading that um, it may not be long now before uh, Abraham Lincoln frees the slaves. So this is in the air, and this is very exciting. Now, we, we like this white lady for teaching him how to read. Isn't it wonderful that she's so gracious to do this because um, many wouldn't do that. Uh, they treat them like garbage. And uh, here she is taking the time to do this. Isn't she wonderful? No, she's not. No, she's not because uh, she has a thing for black guys. And uh, as a result, she is uh, coming on to him. And of course, he's petrified. Um, well, um, into his life comes another black man. And... Um, and the black man uh, is attracted to uh, to the slave we know. And wow, you know, what's going to happen here? Um, this is 1862, after all. And um, it really does indicate that uh, the person you love um, is the person you love irrespective of the body. That's really one of the things that comes across here, that if you love the person, you love the body. And I think that's a very strong statement that is made in Sugar in Our Wounds. So uh, what's going to happen? Well, that white lady, as I say, likes black men. And as a result, she's going to certainly come on to uh, our new visitor. And um, he's not interested. And she is furious. Uh, there's a very effective scene where she really, um, you should pardon the expression that uh, was used by teenagers once upon a time, but I'll use it here, um, feels them up. And uh, it's a very erotic scene, uh, except it's not erotic to uh, this man, Henry. Um, <clears throat> so what happens, um, of course, she gets furious with him. And, you know, we have a feeling that uh, she's not going to make life easy for him. So he thinks about taking off on the road. And um, the question is whether or not his um, friend James will come with him. Well, the most effective thing to me um, happens right at the beginning of the play, because the, the, the set, um, which really is nothing more than a tree, but what a tree. I mean, this is um, of California redwood size. So uh, Anofo Maldonado, who, who did it, really had to do a tree, and the rest of the stage um, has virtually nothing on it. But um, what's said at the beginning is the fact that uh, James, the slave, um, that his father was hung on that tree and his father before him and his father before him. I mean, usually when you hear the expression, my father before me and his father before him, it's usually something pleasant. And to hear um, the fact that uh, that all his forebears were, were hanged on this tree, whoa, you know, um, and uh, he wants to make sure that that's not going to happen. Uh, I'll leave it uh, to those of you who haven't seen the play to go and see whether or not it does happen and the circumstances around it that could make it happen. So um, my hat is off to John Jar Love, the playwright, who did a spectacular job in making us so increasingly 
galvanized by what was going on. This one really um, starts as a, a freight train that keeps rolling and rolling and accelerating and accelerating. And this is a real heart in the mouth play. And while uh, the season for me, I always start the season on June 1st, is less than a month old. Uh, I have already seen 27 shows, and this is the best of the bunch. Wow. Right. 27 shows already. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, and as I mentioned, this is a very hard ticket to get. This is the buzz, the buzz around this is very strong, and it's a small space and hard to get to seat. So uh, if you can get it, get it. It's playing through July 15th. They announced an extension, so uh, you have a little bit of time to go see it. Uh, Michael, you got yes. down to 54 below to see Richard H. Blake and Carol Cook in two different shows. So tell us about these uh, two shows. They were both excellent. On Monday, June 18th, Richard H. Blake did his show there. He is currently in the cast of A Bronx Tale as Lorenzo. And uh, I, he has been in more than a dozen Broadway shows because he started on Broadway as a child actor. Mm. Uh, his first Broadway show was Teddy and Alice in 1987. And then he was in Macbeth with Christopher Plummer and Tony Award winner Glenda Jackson, uh, as he as he referred to her in uh, 1988. And then in 1989, he was the lead in a musical called Prince of Central Park, which closed so quickly that I, I know even I. I didn't even get to see it. It ran 19 previews and four performances. And as Richard said during his show at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below, uh, he was 14 at the time. And he, to this date, uh, I didn't research it, but I'm sure it's, it's correct. He's the only child actor to have his name above the title for any show. So that was quite an achievement, uh, even though <laughs> the show wasn't around very long. Um, and and he tells a, a marvelous story in his show about how he had a choice between two projects at that time, Prince of Central Park or joining the new Mickey Mouse Club on TV as one of the Mouseketeers. And he, I guess because he had already done two Broadway shows and because it was going to be the lead and he didn't necessarily know what this Mickey Mouse Club thing would amount to um, – even though it was television, you know, and uh, you know, presumably potentially yeah. a lot more lucrative, uh, he he decided to do Prince of Central Park, which, as I said, wound up closing and four performances. But since he didn't do the Mickey Mouse Club, since Richard uh, turned that down, they they got you know they filled the spot with someone else, and the person whom they filled it with was Ryan Gosling, mm. and uh, and also uh, among the other people in that group of Mouseketeers were uh, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, and Justin Timberlake. So um, that so it didn't turn out to be so Mickey Mouse after all, right? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really amazing. Um, but uh, I have seen Richard in, in many of his shows. He uh, His other credits are, let's see, uh, I think this is in order... Uh, his other credits are Rent, Saturday Night Fever, Aida, Hairspray, Wicked, Jersey Boys, The Wedding Singer, Legally Blonde, Matilda, and now A Bronx Tale. And he um, 
he really uh, is a very charming guy with a great voice. One one reason I'm so happy I got to see him do this this full length club act at at Fifty Four Below is that I uh, I have not had that much opportunity to hear him sing solo that much because some of the shows uh, oh. he was in uh, he was supporting characters. I remember in the Wedding Singer his uh, character only had one song, which he did does do in this, uh, which he did perform in the 54 below show, uh, and, uh, legally blonde. I don't, I don't think he had much singing in that, but, uh, and I actually didn't see him in, in rent. Uh, uh, that, that, that was a big sing, but I didn't see that one. And he, uh, he, repl- he was a replacement in Saturday night fever and some of the other shows. So I didn't see him, uh, in some of those either, but, um, he, he really is very charming with a great voice and he's a fairly recent, uh, father, uh, so that that's he talked about that and about his wife and his and his son and the the place was absolutely packed and everyone just loved it. There were lots of um, people that he's worked with over the years, and that that's that's enough people to fill <laughs> to fill a space much larger than fifty four below. Um, I, and I think he said, I'm pretty sure he said that this is the first time he's ever done a show like this. Uh, but you wouldn't know it. He was so poised and the writing was so good. It was great. There, as far as um, uh, somebody, uh, he and a friend of his spent a lot of effort and time on a lot of projections and old footage and photos. Um, so it was, it was really, really excellent. And then... Um, on Wednesday, the 20th, I went back to Feinstein's 54 Below to see Carol Cook do her one-woman show. Uh, she did two performances, one on Tuesday the 19th and the other on the 20th, which uh, was what I saw. And she is 94 years old. She is a marvelous character actress who's been around for <laughs> for obviously many decades. Um, the things that I knew, the two things I really knew her from were uh, an old movie called The Incredible Mr. Limpet, uh, starring Don Knotts, in which she played the, Don Knotts' wife. And uh, it's a long story, but uh, uh. it's a long story. But Mr. Limpet winds up turning into a fish. And I, I you know, I guess the, the whole. Uh, the movie is supposed to be a, an allegory or a metaphor. Uh, I'd love to see it again. It used to be shown on TV all the time. I haven't seen it in years. So that's one thing I knew Carol Cook from. Uh, I also did know her because she was a, a frequent guest on uh, the Lucy show in the 60s, I guess, uh, one or more incarnations of the Lucy show. And then uh, many of our listeners may know her uh, from her performance in the original company and on the original cast recording of 42nd Street. But uh, she has had a lengthy, lengthy career. She was uh, uh, apparently the first person in the world to play Dolly Levi in the musical Hello, Dolly, after Carol Channing, because she was hired to head up uh, the company that wound up opening in Australia. Uh, So that uh, I knew about that, but I, I've never seen her do Dolly, unfortunately. Uh, there were a lot of things she talked about that I didn't know. She was in the uh, legendary off-Broadway production of Three Penny Opera uh, 
as a as a replacement in that. Um, she talked about her her many years of friendship with Lucy and how Lucille Ball was such a mentor to her. Um, then she uh, talked about Forty Second Street and and recreated uh, or recounted the famous or infamous opening night story about how. Uh, uh, David Merrick announced uh, during the curtain call that Gower Champion had died that afternoon and, and no one knew it uh, until he said it and the shock that that caused. So we, we've heard that story many times, I, I think, but she told it from her perspective. So that was really, really amazing to hear that. Um, and she also said, uh, told something I didn't know, she, uh, Carol, had become very close with Ethel Merman, um, uh, over the years, and indeed was with her. Uh, she told a beautiful story about how she and Merman went to Central Park w- one day, not long before Merman died. And uh, Merman was in a wheelchair, and, and the two of them were sitting there, and a band came along and started to play. Uh, and so the two women started singing the song, which was uh, Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries. Um, so that was a quite an, an amazing, beautiful story. Um, there weren't many songs in, in the show, uh, even though it was about 90 minutes long. Uh, there were only about f- uh, six or seven songs, including Nobody Does It Like Me uh, from Seesaw, uh, Something Cool, which is a, a, a wonderful old uh, Billy Barnes standard. Uh, <clears throat> Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries, as I just mentioned. And then uh, she did, Carol did give us before the parade passes by. Uh, so I, I did finally get to hear and see a little bit of her as Dolly Levi. Uh, as I said, she's 94. Uh, she, her patter was great. Uh, the show was directed by David Galligan. Um, she, one of her first lines when she came out was uh, something like, I'm telling you now, I'm not going to sing, I'm still here. <laughs> and then at the end, towards the end, she said um, uh, her big line was, uh, you know, how, how she's persevered and how she's still going strong. And she said, death is the new 50. So <laughs> the audience really loved that line. Um, uh, she, she is amazing. She uh, lives in L.A., I believe. And so uh, is, this was a trip for her, but it was, it was really, really well worth it. I'm so glad she came and I'm so glad I got to see the show. Mm, how wonderful! Yes, That's, it's it's really something to hear about somebody ninety four yes. doing an act. I mean, you know. So, uh, um, in terms of uh, the Prince of Central Park, I am sure that many of our listeners know this story. But in case um, nobody does, <laughs> uh, you know that uh, so many times Broadway musicals do get. Um, parodied, uh, their names get corrupted uh, by people who like to do that. Uh, the worst I've ever heard was uh, somebody referred to Camelot as Camel Snot, you know. But um, when um, the Red Shoes was failing off Broadway, so many people were f- uh, fired from it that it was then dubbed the Pink Slips. But I don't think anybody's done any better than the Prince of Central Park uh, in parodying that title because the original leading lady was Gloria DeHaven, but she was replaced by. Joanne Wally. So after that, the show was always known as Ain't Mr. Haven. So <laughs> my favorite so, of them all. <laughs> Michael, maybe we should, uh, you know, Carol Cook is 94, and maybe we should talk to Jennifer Ashley Tepper and have her rename the room uh, 94 below. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, 
yeah. the uh, the Broadway community was shaken terribly on uh, Tony Award evening, not because of what Mr. De Niro said, but for the fact that you did not even see the Tony Awards that evening because you were in London. You had a uh, a prearranged trip to London, and so uh, tell us what did you see in your days over there. Well, it is true. This is the first time I've missed a, a Tony since 1967, either on TV or in the press room or in the audience or sometimes even the rehearsals. So, um, and I've yet to see it. I've been promised a DVD, but I haven't been able to hook up with the person who's done it. And oh. I'm looking forward. I'm looking. I'm looking forward because um, what's really nice is that so many of us were so skeptical about the hosts, and it turned out that everybody seems to think they were charming and wonderful. So I'm. I'm looking forward to seeing that. So London, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. This was a, a trip that uh, my girlfriend won quotation marks around the word won on a silent auction, and as a result, we had to go between uh, June 7th and June 12th. So um, we were there um, for five uh, days, and I saw five shows. I first went to see Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is a show that I thought had terrific potential in the first 10 minutes because it's about a 16-year-old boy uh, who, when asked by his teacher, what do you want to be when you grow up, uh, says, I want to be a drag queen. And he makes it at that point sound as if he's going to be um, a professional um, that that is his career choice, not necessarily that he um, is a transvestite, um, just as Barry Humphreys um, has Dame Edna. But um, I, I get the impression that during the day um, or even in his private life, uh, if he's alone in his house, he's dressed like a man. And I thought, oh, this is a very interesting thing. Um, um, a kid who wants this is a career choice. Um, it doesn't turn out that way. He really is uh, out and out and out proud, and um, he certainly doesn't feel bad about telling this to any of his classmates, including Dean, who uh, is one of these uh, thuggy-type guys who um, isn't very verbal. In fact, uh, his big slur to um, Jamie is saying, you're gay, 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 gay. He, he repeats it 13 times. At which point, Jamie um, doesn't take this lying down. He's very courageous. Um, in fact, he may very well be a little too unbelievably courageous. Um, I guess we'd like to think that people are this courageous, but um, I'm going to give the actual quotation that he um, says when Dean um, <clears throat> uh, castigates him and um, – Jamie's response is, you tragic, meathead, mini-dicked, retard, scrounger, waste-of-space wanker. Now, to me, them's fighting words. And I expect a beating to occur here. I'm not wishing for the beating, understand, but I'm expecting it. It doesn't happen. Dean says, I don't have a small dick. Yeah, and you know, and I, 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 don't <laughs> see, I don't see it just being that. You know, I... I uh, the worst he ever does is show up at a drag club where um, Jamie performs. Now, here it is. We're leading up to this. We're going to see Jamie at a drag club. He's 16 years old. I don't know if that is really something that they would let him be a solo act at a drag club. I mean, liquor's being served there. I don't know. But anyway, maybe things are different in London. But So we're very reminded of Gypsy because we go backstage and there are three drag queens who I'm sorry to say aren't as funny as Mazeppa, Electra, or Tessitura. 
and they don't get a song either. And I wonder if, if the creators, um, Tom McRae, um, who did the book and um, did the lyrics as well, and Dan Gillespie Sells, who did the music, felt, well, we're going to be compared to you got to uh, get a gimmick. Um, so maybe we won't do that. But it's impossible not to think of those three ladies while you're watching uh, these three drag queens back there. And uh, there are some witty lines. I mean, for example, before somebody goes on, they don't say break a leg. They say break a nail. You know, so that's good. You know, there are some... Uh, good lines but uh, ultimately not as, as funny as that scene we know in Gypsy so anyway we have the same situation as Gypsy here's um, Jamie going out for the first time is me 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 M-I-M-I-M-E that's his drag name me 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 so he goes out he faces the audience and blackout end of act one now come on we want to see if he's good or bad don't we um, one of the most magnificent things about Gypsy, which they really can't do here, I'll grant you, is watching Louise grow from that scared um, virgin stripper, if you will, uh, to uh, a star at Minsky's. But um, all we get is the beginning of the second act is um, his schoolmates singing about everybody's talking about Jamie, the title of the show. And um, and so that goes on there. Well, you know, I, I, we, got, we have to see him. I don't know why we don't see him perform, for better or worse. So there are other complications, too. Needless to say, as you would expect, as you would um, – <laughs> you would have to expect Jamie's father doesn't like the fact that he does this. But Jamie's father is bolted. And in a very impressive scene, very impressive, uh, Jamie's father comes back to see his ex-wife. And it says, I'm about to be a father again with my um, new wife. And I just don't want to see you anymore. Do not call me. Do not get in touch with me. I have a new life now. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, and the most potent line of all. When he says, when I look at Jamie, I think, I married you for that? Whoa. I mean, that's really something. So this is oh, a hateful man. time. Yeah. Okay. Well, now here's the problem. Um, when Jamie turns 16, um, he gets a card from his father with money in it. Um, when Jamie appears at the drag club, he gets flowers from his father and a good luck card. Do you believe this? No, you don't. And partly because we suspect that um, and we are told, in fact, in the first instance, that the mother's doing this. She feels bad that, um, you know, your dad can't make it for the birthday. Your dad can't make it for tonight, but he sent flowers. Your dad can't make it. So we sent you a gift. Um, the kid buys it. I don't think he would. Uh, he seems to be a pretty sharp kid. And I don't believe he would really um, believe that his uh, father is doing these things for him, given the fact that his father once caught him dressing and, of course, was furious. So uh, in the second act, um, the truth comes out when he goes to see his father to say thanks for the birthday gift, thanks for the uh, flowers. What are you talking about? And he gets furious at his mother. And I just think this goes in a very strange direction. I, the kid we see is just too smart for this. So there are nagging flaws here and there, but, 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 but I have got to commend Tom McRae for doing something in a pop rock score I don't hear very often, if at all. Perfect rhymes. Every one of them. I've read the script. Every one of them. <laughs> he doesn't do an imperfect rhyme or a false accent. Uh, and longtime listeners know that this is a thing with me. But you don't hear this in pop rock scores. But you do hear it in everybody's talking about Jamie. I don't know if it'll come here. A lot of people have said, well, it's so much like Billy Elliot, you know, because there a boy wants to be a, 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 a ballerino and um, here a boy wants to be a drag queen. I mean, and, and the family has issues with it, so on and so forth. Uh, there's more drama in Billy Elliot because of the minor strike. But... 
Um, <clears throat> this one does seem a little more English to me than uh, Billy Elliot, so I'm not really certain that uh, it will ever come here. However, the film rights have already been sold, so maybe I'm wrong about that. If it can play in films all around the world, as a film all around the world, well, why can't it play on Broadway? So who knows? We may yet see um, everybody's talking about Jamie. So, so that was the first show I saw. Um, <clears throat> then I went to The Moderate Soprano, a play by David Hare. And um, <laughs> frankly, I'm not sure I would have chosen this, but these were the tickets that came along with the trip in the silent auction. So, um, but um, very effective play and uh, about a man who wants to build an opera house for his wife. He um, And it's the Glyndebourne Opera House, which uh, turned out to be a big deal as time went on. But um, we, we really see the struggles. Even Rudolf Bing becomes a character in here and a rather controversial one, I'll say. But um, the wonderful thing about it was Roger Allen's performance as the um the, the husband uh, boy did he love his wife and that came across really quite well so um a very nice play yeah if, if we use the star system yeah three stars out of four i think i would say i went to a pub <clears throat> not to drink but to go upstairs where they were doing the biograph girl now the biograph girl is a 1980 musical that david henniker did and um well uh, what chance uh, am i going to get to see the biograph girl so uh, i certainly uh, i i wrote in advance because there were only 50 seats in the pub and i didn't want to get shut out i i bought my ticket in advance um, no fooling around i wasn't going to miss it um that type of thing and um boy um the the cast really did a very 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 game um rendition of it uh, especially a woman named sophie linder lee uh, who played mary pickford so this is a story about uh, the early days of the movies and it's impossible not to think of mac and mabel while watching it partly because of the music is by david henniker who is rather jerry hermanish if you know half of sixpence that's his um famous show um he also did some work in irma la deuce though i gotta interrupt myself here to say when i was there I was amazed to see that there was a book um, about business in a bookstore, which was called Crash Bang Wallop, uh, which uh, is a parody of Flash Bang Wallop, a song from Half Sixpence. But back to the Biograph Girl, uh, Mac and Mabel, all is forgiven. Anybody who's ever had any problem with uh, the book of the show, and everybody always has. But the Biograph Girl um, really wasn't very interesting because, as my friend Ken Bloom says, so many times musicals and plays today are just Wikipedia articles put on stage. And that's what this was. It really was more a documentary about um, the early days of the silent movies. And um, it was like in 1923, we did this. In 1925, we did that. And um, it relied more on the history of what was going on in movies rather than the characters themselves. So um, the score is a pleasant in a minor Jerry Herman way. Um, and um, so I wasn't sorry I went. I never am. But uh, but still um, not uh, as, as wonderful a work as I would have hoped uh, it would have been. Sunday afternoon, not much playing on Sundays in London in the West End, but uh, I didn't mind because I knew that Witness for the Prosecution was going to be done at a courthouse. And what a courthouse, a beautiful, beautiful, I mean, not, you know, just like a, a regular uh, room where there are a few um, pews where people sit. I mean, this was really an ornate place. Tremendous. Council Hall, it was called, uh, very near the river, not far from the National Theater. And um, I did want to see how the play would play on stage because I know the movie extraordinarily well. And the movie is quite different. If you know the movie, there's a story that has nothing to do with the play in which our um, defense attorney is um, is somebody who's 
very ill and just got out of the hospital and um, he's not supposed to work, but the case intrigues him so much that he takes it on. So that is not remotely in the play that Agatha Christie wrote, or at least not in this version. I don't know if they fooled around with it. But um, <laughs> what I always forget when plays are site-specific is that um, – they're in places that were not meant to be theaters, and as a result, the acoustics are lousy. Granted, they were all mic'd, but still, uh, the echo in the place really um, made the, the play far less enjoyable. If I didn't know it, um, I think I would have tuned out very early because of the sound. So um, if it's running till September, so if you get there and it sounds intriguing to you, at least be prepared that you're going to hear a lot of echoing in the sound. So, um, And uh, finally, I saw Young Frankenstein... <clears throat> Because it's a Music Theatre International show, and I knew it was uh, going to be a very re different rendition of it, because um, they had done some work on it. Um, a few songs were dropped. Uh, uh, at least one was added. And um, I, I thought this would make a good fodder for a column, and uh, it did turn out to be. It was in a tiny theatre, um, comparatively speaking, um, 732 seats I checked the Garrick Theatre has. Now, you compare this to the Hilton, or whatever it was called in those days, um, and when Young Frankenstein played there, and that place um, had like 1,900 seats. I don't know what it has now. I know it's been uh, uh, rejiggered. But still, um, comedy does play best in tight um, spaces. When it, uh, it, 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 it's too big a house, it gets lost. I mean, would you put Mona Lisa in a 20-foot by 40-foot frame? No, of course not. So you, you really have to have the right place for this show. And I think Young Frankenstein really found its right place in a small uh, production. And... The other thing, too, is, you know, considering the fact that this is a parody of horror movies, uh, you know, um, you don't really need big scenery. I mean, so many of those horror, horror movies were almost Ed Woodian in, um, in their scope. Uh, they were really um, – they almost prided themselves on the fact that they weren't offering uh, big effects or, uh, or lavish uh, production values. It just um, it was not part of the uh, equation. Um, so it played much better here in London than it did on Broadway. It was um, – and, you know – I was also reminded about when um, Mel Brooks wanted to do The Producers as a musical. He first went to Jerry Herman and said, um, you know, why don't you do it? And Jerry Herman said, Mel, I think you could do it yourself. And he did, of course, and won a Tony for it. But, you know, really, it, it is uh, – Mel Brooks does write very Jerry Hermanish music, um, but with a wink. Um, it's, it's almost like a parody of it, but, um, but you know, it was, it was an enjoyable evening. It was nice to see it with a, a house that appreciated it. And, um, the people who were in it were very good. So, um, but what occurred to me, I think somebody should try a production of Young Frankenstein done in black and white, because after all, so many of those horror movies were in black and white, including Frankenstein, including Young Frankenstein. So um, I think that's something that uh, if any of you directors out there are considering doing Young Frankenstein, think about doing it in black and white and gray. I think it's a good idea, and uh, I think people will get the joke from the moment the curtain went up. So that's my trip to London. A good time was had by me. All right. Five days, five shows, Peter. A good time was had. That's great. Well, you know, and it would have been six if I could have found something on Sunday night. But the only <laughs> thing playing was the play that goes wrong and the comedy about the bank robbery, which is a variation on the play that goes wrong. And I've seen them both. You know, mm. so uh, so uh, we went to a nice dinner. But uh, it would have been six if uh, London uh, did have something of interest playing at uh, seven o'clock on Sunday night. Very interesting about everybody talking about Jamie because uh, I we've talked to a number of people who have seen that in at the Apollo in London and everybody thinks that it is destined to be here next year. 
So. Well, we'll see. Uh, and getting here, of course, is one thing, and succeeding here is another. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, it may very well. It may very well. Um, I, I don't wish it ill, certainly, but um, I did have a lot of issues with it, so which may not bother anybody else, and I hope it doesn't. Now, and just just parenthetically, uh, and I I couldn't call up the article right now, but we just read this week about how a production of Billy Elliot uh, was was canceled. Is that Uh, it? Well, you talking about the one in Hungary? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The uh, Billy Elliot production in Hungary was playing for a number of. I want to say a number of years already, but all of a sudden canceled. Uh, they stopped the production because all of a sudden they discovered uh, that, <laughs> that <laughs> the gay subject matter the of gay okay. subject matter. Yeah. And of course, it, the huge irony in that show being that Billy himself is a, a major straight. a major point is that he is not gay, but right. his friend Michael is gay, and so that's right. how that and and some of the other characters, of course, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, so the New York Times uh, said that Billy Elliot musical branded gay propaganda in hun- Hungary and the cancellations follow. Uh, and uh, it opened in 2016 to critical acclaim. It's been running, then all of a sudden discovered. <laughs> so, I mean, people are nuts. <laughs> I, you know, I, the thing is, is that, you know... Th- Two years ago, we would have been like, "Oh my God, I can't believe this!" But these days, we're this—you know—this is not even making the radar screen. I was going to say, if you thought those days were over, uh, I don't know if they were ever over. Probably not. And if they were over, they're back. So, are uh, they were never over in Hungary, um, a very famous country for being uh, very homophobic. Um, But uh, yeah, all these battles (laughs) will eventually be won. Um, It's it's certainly uh, taking time, but all these battles will certainly be won. So that's our consolation. Okay, so before we wrap up for the morning and get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Um, And with that, let's get on to trivia. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the original production of these plays are in order for a certain reason. What do they have in common? Mary Mary, Darkness at Noon, Mr. Big, Everywhere I Roam, The Late George Apley, and The Captains and the Kings. Now, I will admit that these are very obscure titles, even Mary Mary, which is probably still like uh, probably the fifth longest running play to ever run on Broadway, but um, it's never done anymore. And the other titles I'm sure were totally unfamiliar to people. So as a result, I wasn't surprised that nobody got the answer, but I will tell you that here, um, I'm not even going to essentially give you the answer. I'm going to uh, give you hints to the answer. And I think everybody will put two and two together um, when I explain that Mary Mary had Michael Rennie, in its cast. Darkness at Noon had Claude Rains. Mr. Big had Faye Ray. Everywhere I Roam had Anne Francis. 
the late judge aptly had Leo G. Carroll, and the captains and the kings had Dana Andrews. So um, I think um, our listeners will be able to put two and two together as to what that is. I'm not going to go any um, longer on that. So, <clears throat> new question. The man who came to dinner ran 739 performances long before Sherry, its musical version, could only manage 72. Look Homewood Angel ran 564 performances, while Angel, its Broadway musical version, ran only five. But what Broadway play had the shortest run and a musical version that had an even shorter run? That's our question for this week. All right. If you know the answer to this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. And by the way that I feel when that bell starts to peel, I could swear I was falling. Yes, I know I was falling and it's all